Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 18th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Clashes in Sudan continue for a third day. An Alabama birthday party shooting leaves four dead. The U.S. says it killed an IS leader in northwest Syria. A French court acquits Air France and Airbus over the 2009 Rio Paris crash. Iran issues prison sentences for the 2020 downing of a Ukrainian airliner. A Kremlin critic is jailed for 25 years. Ex-Chancellor Merkel is granted the highest German honor. SpaceX's Starship launch is postponed. Trump's campaign is revealed to have raised $34 million in early 2023. And 11 are killed by heat stroke at a government event in India. In our top story, news coming from Sudan as dire situations are reported on the third day of fighting in Khartoum. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, CNN, New York Times, and Financial Times. According to a doctor's union, almost 100 civilians have been left dead as fighting between the army and paramilitary forces entered its third day in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum on Monday. Local hospital workers have spoken of dire situations amid shelling of electricity and water supplies, while regional African leaders have sought to guide the nation back towards a peaceful transition to civilian government. Rival forces have clashed over key sites in the capital Khartoum and elsewhere in the country, such as the presidential palace and the city's airport, as well as military bases, prompting Chad to close borders with Sudan and airlines to suspend flights. This comes after days of escalated tensions between the military and the powerful Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, over how the paramilitary group should be merged into armed forces, a key condition of the as-yet unsigned deal that could see the nation transition to democracy. CNN reported, citing civilian and military sources, that the main issues include the timeline for the integration of the RSF into the Sudanese military, the hierarchical status of its officials, and its future commander. On Monday, Army Chief General Abdel Fattah al-Buran called for the RSF to be dissolved. His comments came as a power struggle with RSF Head General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo continues. The violence is the latest setback in a long-delayed transition to a civilian government after former national leader Omar al-Bashir was ousted in 2019 amid streets protests and a further power change took place in 2021. Those were the facts. Now here are the narrative spins. Let's begin with narrative A from Dabanga, Sudan. The RSF has wreaked havoc in Sudan because its forces were unjustifiably deployed to Khartoum and other parts of the country which has been going through a decisive moment to establish a civilian-led transitional government. While it is true that the paramilitary group has become a state within a state, this crisis has ultimately been fueled by elements of the former al-Bashir regime, who are willing to drag Sudan into civil war in the hope of returning to power. Narrative B comes from Radio Tamazuch. Saturday's fighting broke out after the Sudanese armed forces attacked off-guard RSF troops stationed in Khartoum who were respecting the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. This unacceptable sweeping attack with heavy and light weapons must be condemned, particularly as the country is going through a critical moment in its history and governance. The SAF should take responsibility for their role in this conflict. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. 
This one says there's a 20% chance that the East African Federation will be formed before the year 2030. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Four are killed and many injured in an Alabama shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, CNN, and the Associated Press. Four people were killed and 28 others were injured on Saturday night in a mass shooting at a crowded birthday party in Dadeville, Alabama. The four victims killed in the shooting have been identified as 23-year-old Corbin de Monterey Holston, 19-year-old Marcia Emanuel Collins, 18-year-old Philstavius Dowdle, and 17-year-old Shakivia Nicole Smith. The Dadeville Police Department has said they have solid leads as they search for the suspected shooter, but have asked the public to come forward with any photos or videos taken during the party. The police have yet to release any information about a possible suspect or motive for the violence. The disc jockey at the party told reporters that prior to the shooting, the party was briefly stopped when attendees heard someone had a gun. He said people with guns were asked to leave, but no one left. The shooting reportedly began sometime later. According to the Gun Violence Archive, the U.S. has had more than 160 mass shootings in the first 16 weeks of the year. President Biden called for Congress to reach an agreement on gun control legislation following the attack. Scott, thank you for the facts of this disturbing story. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Gold Country Media. Americans have become desensitized to mass shootings and senseless violence. The Second Amendment doesn't guarantee the right to own guns if the person might hurt others. Those who have anger issues, are mentally ill, have committed crimes, or pose a danger to others must not have access to deadly weapons. Gun control legislation must be changed to address this alarming threat that has become a national epidemic. Contrast that with the right narrative from the National Rifle Association Institute for Legislative Action. While recent mass shootings in the U.S. are extremely unfortunate and upsetting, gun control legislation is not the answer. Gun control legislation will only impact law-abiding citizens the majority of whom would never commit a violent crime. Allowing law-abiding citizens to carry firearms is a deterrent to violent crime. What Americans need is more crime control, not gun control. There's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment, as written and in force on December 13, 2018, will be successfully amended or repealed before January 1, 2025. The U.S. Central Command conducts a raid on an Islamic State leader in northwest Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Arab News, DW, Al Monitor, and BBC News. U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, said on Monday that its forces had launched a helicopter raid in northwest Syria, which resulted in the probable death of a senior Islamic State leader as well as two armed individuals. CENTCOM said that the unnamed IS leader had been responsible for planning terror attacks in the Middle East and Europe. It also reported no casualties among civilians or U.S. military personnel. The White Helmets, a civil defense group operating in opposition-held areas of northern Syria, said that two people were wounded during the raid and transported to a local hospital, with one being killed at the scene. Local officials later reported that the injured people had died. Other local sources reported that U.S. helicopters landed near the village of Al-Gandura outside of Harabalas, which is located in an area controlled by Turkish-backed groups, before U.S. forces stormed a house. The U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, 
said that the operation targeted a military site belonging to what it described as a Turkish-backed armed opposition group near the Turkish border. The raid was reportedly launched from the SDF-held city of Kobani. Earlier this month, CENTCOM said that it had killed Khalid Eid Ahmad al-Habouri, who it also had accused of participating in the planning of Islamic State attacks in Europe via a drone strike. The UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said that the strike occurred in rebel-held Idlib in northwest Syria. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this attack from ABC News. It's always good news when an IS leader is killed as it mitigates the group's ability to conduct terror attacks outside of its areas of influence. The U.S. will continue to counter IS and the threat it poses to the world at large. And Newsweek gives us an establishment critical narrative. This operation was an illegal violation of Syria's sovereignty. Though Damascus and Washington agree that IS is a terrorist organization, the U.S. had no right to violate Syria's airspace in order to continue its policy of extrajudicial killings under the guise of counterterrorism. We spend tens of hundreds of millions of dollars in like the greatest camouflage and stealth technology. And then you got this group in Syria. We're the white helmets, man. We just we wear white helmets. That's our thing. <laughs> We're just going to put ourselves out there. I know. I mean, I guess they're a civil defense group, so it's supposed to be kind of like, here we are, but yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't be my choice. Air France and Airbus are acquitted over the 2009 Rio Paris crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, CBS News, Reuters, and the Journal of Ireland. On Monday, both Airbus and Air France were acquitted of manslaughter charges by a French court for their involvement in the 2009 crash of Flight 447. The aircraft was traveling from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to Paris, France. All 228 passengers and crew died in the accident. During the reading of the verdict, the court said that if errors occurred, there is no certain link of causality to show that the errors resulted in the mishap. During the trial, aircraft experts testified that after a mid-Atlantic storm, ice crystals caused a malfunction that sounded alarms in the cockpit and caused the autopilot to disengage. The pilots responded by putting the Airbus A330 into a climb, which caused the aircraft to lose altitude, resulting in the crash. Both Airbus and Air France maintained that the crash was a result of a pilot error. The reading of the verdict appeared to have stunned the families of the victims as they began to sob, and some erupted in anger. Elaine Jakubowicz, a lawyer for the Victims Association, said, It's a verdict that is hard for the victims' families to understand. There were errors. This accident could have been avoided. It should have been avoided. If Airbus and Air France had been found guilty of manslaughter, both companies faced a maximum corporate fine of up to $246,000. Some settlements have also reportedly occurred for undisclosed amounts. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from PBS. The French courts have gone soft in the trial of Airbus and Air France. Both companies have come out of the accident as largely untouchable. In their minds, the loss of loved ones is secondary to the loss of their aircraft. The families of the victims promised that they would bring the companies to justice, and the truth would be known. It's important that the victims do not die in vain, and that the safety of others on these faulty aircraft is protected. Airbus knew the planes were dangerous, and yet they did nothing. And Narrative B comes from the New York Times. Airbus and Air France have maintained throughout the years that the error that caused the crash lies with the pilots. Even so, Air France will continue to remember and honor the victims and has offered its compassion and sympathy to the families as they continue to navigate these tragic times. Airbus remains committed to its safety-first culture and will strive to remain 
a safe aircraft builder for passengers and employees alike. Eric, I'm so sorry that this tragedy happened. It's very sad, but I think we might need to update these you know, corporate fines, a maximum fine of $246,000. That doesn't seem like that much, even if they were found guilty. That's a small price to pay. I um, was watching John Oliver uh, this week. They did an expose on migrant workers, like the people who, you know, pick the crops by hand on, on, on huge farms. And at a farm in Idaho, this is true. A couple of them at a farm in Idaho drowned in a vat of manure and the company was subject to a $5,000 fine. So that doesn't line up. <laughs> No, it sure doesn't. I mean, that's that's a bunch of crap. Yeah, you want to talk about bullshit. That's oh, my God. God. In our next story, Iran issues prison sentences for the 2020 downing of a Ukraine airliner. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, DW, ABC News, Al Arabia, and BBC News. Iranian media reported on Sunday that at least 10 Iranian military personnel were convicted for their involvement in the shooting down of Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 in 2020 following the killing of the Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani. The commander of the Tor M1 surface-to-air missile defense system that shot down the plane with two missiles was reportedly the case's main suspect, and he received a 10-year discretionary sentence for not heeding orders and three years for being an accessory to semi-intentional murder. Local media reported that the commander had defied orders and that the nine other military personnel received prison terms of between one and three years for their involvement. None of those convicted were identified by name. The case reportedly began immediately after the incident, and the commander was ordered to pay fines to the families of the victims. The verdicts are said to be appealable within 20 days. The incident occurred on January 8, 2020, when Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, shot down the Ukrainian plane shortly after takeoff from Tehran, resulting in the deaths of all 176 people on board, which included passengers from Canada, Ukraine, Britain, and Afghanistan. The downing of the plane came only days after the U.S. killed top IRGC commander Qasem Soleimani in a drone strike in the Iraqi capital of Baghdad. Iran then fired missiles at U.S. bases in Iraq in response to the killing. Okay, here's our establishment critical narrative on this story coming from Al Mayadeen. Contrary to Western media's coverage of this tragic incident, Iran has done everything to rectify this tragedy. Indeed, the incident was the result of human error, as following the U.S.'s unlawful extrajudicial killing of a senior Iranian military commander, as following the U.S.'s unlawful extrajudicial killing of a senior Iranian military commander, tensions were running particularly high. Justice has been served. Radio Free Europe gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Though Iranian media is touting these court verdicts as justice, in reality, it was a closed-show trial that is an insult to the families of the victims. Canada, Britain, Sweden, and Ukraine should formally complain about Iran at the International Court of Justice and continue to press Iran on this heinous act. A Kremlin critic is jailed for 25 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Yahoo Finance, BBC News, CNN, and Gov.uk. Vladimir Kara Mirza, a prominent Kremlin critic who has previously survived two suspected poisoning attempts, was on Monday sentenced to 25 years' imprisonment after publicly condemning Moscow's war in Ukraine. He was detained last year and charged with treason, spreading fake news about the Russian army and facilitating activities of an undesirable organization before being found guilty at a trial that concluded last week. 
In his final statements to the court, Kara Mirza remained defiant and stood by his criticism of the Kremlin, saying, I subscribe to every word that I have said. Not only do I not repent any of this, I am proud of it. Following the sentencing, the UK government announced that it had summoned the Russian ambassador over the treatment of Kara Mirza, a dual citizen of both Russia and Britain. Echoing statements from human rights organizations, Britain's foreign ministry called on Russia to respect international obligations on protections for freedom of expression and urged Moscow to release the critic. Elsewhere, though Slovakia announced the delivery of 13 fighter jets to Ukraine on Monday, the Eastern European country joined neighbors Poland and Hungary in announcing a temporary ban on the import of Ukrainian grain. Bulgaria is also reportedly mulling a similar move. While Ukrainian grain was supposed to pass through their countries onto other destinations, supply chains have often been obstructed, creating an oversupply that has dramatically decreased prices, thus angering local farmers whose profits have been hit. Meanwhile, less than a month after Chinese leader Xi Jinping's state visit to Russia, the country's new defense minister Li Shang-Fu traveled to Moscow over the weekend where he met with counterpart Sergei Shoigu and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Both Li and Putin described the visit, in which they pledged to further increase military cooperation as a testament to their country's growing bilateral relations. In the meantime, as part of a South America tour that will see him visit Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov traveled to Brazil on Monday. It comes as Brazil's President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva returns from a state visit to China, where he told reporters the U.S. should stop encouraging the war and that the European Union must start talking about peace. His comments likely ruffled feathers in Washington. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin for this story is a pro-Russian narrative coming from Interfax. As demonstrated by his trial, Vladimir Karamurza clearly violated Russian laws by spreading false information both in Russia and abroad. His sentence is justified and is in line with the crimes he committed. Amnesty International brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The prison sentence imposed on Vladimir Karamurza is a very troubling demonstration of Russia's growing intolerance of dissent. This is clearly a politically motivated case and is reminiscent of the show trials that occurred under Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. Russia needs to respect international laws on freedom of expression and unconditionally release Karamurza. We have a nerd narrative as well for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that The Economist will rank Russia as a democracy in its Democracy Index by August of 2052. And that is according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Man, imagine being a target of poisoning attacks and you're in a jail where someone's going to hand you your food and you don't get to look at who prepared it. That's Oh uh, my goodness. That's, that's, that'd be sound, terrifying every single time. It sounds like my last marriage. <laughs> in our next story, ex-Chancellor Merkel gifted the highest German honor. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, Politico, The Telegraph, and ABC News. Former Chancellor Angela Merkel was decorated with Germany's highest possible honor on Monday in recognition of her near-record 16 years at the helm of the country. German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier bestowed the Grand Cross of the Order and Merit for special achievement upon Merkel, who joined Konrad Adenauer and Helmut Kohl as the only recipients of the award. Steinmeier, Merkel's former vice chancellor and foreign minister, praised Merkel as an unprecedented politician who successfully steered Germany through difficult times, including the 2008 global financial collapse and the 2015 refugee emergency. However, senior members of Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, 
suggested that she wasn't a worthy recipient, with Deputy Leader Karsten Linneman citing grievous errors during her tenure. Some also criticized her government's energy policy, as it saw the import of large quantities of gas from Russia. Merkel has staunchly defended her diplomatic efforts, saying that a much-criticized 2015 peace deal for eastern Ukraine bought Kyiv precious time. She has also tried to maintain a low public image since stepping down in 2021. All right, thanks for that Merkel update, Eric. We have a narrative A from the New Statesman. Angela Merkel's legacy will forever be tarnished by her doctrine of passivity toward Vladimir Putin and Russia. While Merkel was able to accomplish some great feats as chancellor, and she led Germany through a volatile time, her leadership tenure contributed to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Not only did she enable this act, but she also continues to take responsibility. Between Ukraine and the 2015 immigration crisis, Merkel's legacy cannot recover. Narrative B coming from My Hero. Despite the incredible difficulties Angela Merkel had to navigate, she always managed to stay rooted in her core values and push Germany forward. Angela Merkel transcended all stereotypes and became an unprecedented leader and framed Germany prominently within the Atlantic Alliance and global institutions. She helped Germany overcome geopolitical and economic hardships while staying humble and charitable. Some may nitpick Merkel's shortcomings, but she is a hero. You know what? For real, it's on my bucket list to hit up Oktoberfest in Germany one of these years. Give me a shot when you do. I'll go with you. For real. I mean, I mean, for <laughs> I know. real. Count me in. I'll, Wouldn't that? that looks, I would love that. It looks like a great time. I'll wear some later hosen. <laughs> the SpaceX Starship launch is postponed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CBS News, Forbes, BBC News, and USA Today. Elon Musk owned SpaceX on Monday, postponed for at least 48 hours the launch of its fully integrated Starship vehicle minutes before it was scheduled for liftoff. Musk tweeted that the uncrewed mission was called off because of a problem with a pressurant valve. Once the launch was scrapped, SpaceX instead held a wet dress rehearsal, during which the team wet the propellant tanks and loaded propellant into the system as if it was holding the actual launch. Starship, which at 394 feet tall and 30 feet wide is the largest, most powerful rocket ever built, received government approval to launch just three days ago. In the lead-up to the launch, Musk had moved to temper expectations for the launch, saying it would be insane to expect success. If Starship launches successfully, it's expected to separate from its super-heavy booster, discard it into the ocean, and complete one lap of Earth after using its own engines for more than six minutes to achieve nearly orbital speeds. Those are the facts, and our first spin is Narrative A coming from Wall Street Journal. This postponement is just a small bump in the road to accomplishing something that's never been done before. There was always going to be a chance something, i.e. technical problems, weather conditions, or wind, that would push back the date of the launch. When you're trying to achieve greatness, however, you must be persistent, and SpaceX will continue to find a way to make Mars travel possible someday. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Reusable rockets might be cheaper, but there are other reasons NASA doesn't use this business model. There are more risks, and also more explosions, the way SpaceX is approaching this type of space travel. Maybe these technical issues should make Musk think about alternatives rather than just force him to postpone. And the nerd narrative says there's a 70% chance that SpaceX will land something on Mars before 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I say this without any irony 
or any shame. There's been a video game supposed to be coming out. We've been hearing about it for about 10 years called Starfield. It's supposed to finally come out this year, and I, I'm honestly stoked for it. It's going to be good. You know what I have <laughs> sitting on my desk over here? I'm going to have an Xbox when that thing comes out. You're such a gamer geek. <laughs> it's going to be good. I'm telling you. <laughs> In our next story, the Trump campaign raised $34 million in early 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Hill, Fox News, Bloomberg, Politico, and Newsmax. Former President Donald Trump's 2024 presidential campaign over the weekend filed its latest fundraising report to the Federal Election Commission and revealed it has raised $34 million in 2023 including $18.8 million over the first three months of the year. Trump's campaign said approximately $4 million of the total was collected immediately after he was indicted in New York on March 30th, and $15.4 million was brought in from the indictment through the April 15th filing deadline. Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business documents brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. According to the filing, these funds came from two entities, Donald J. Trump for President 2024, and the Trump Save America Joint Fundraising Committee. The data shows nearly 98% of donations since the indictment came from donors who gave less than $200, and 24% was from first-time Trump donors. The average donation over the period was less than $50. Meanwhile, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, another candidate for the Republican nomination, declared raising $5.1 million in the year's first quarter. In addition, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who hasn't officially declared his candidacy, reportedly has access to at least $110 million raised by allied committees, including $80 million from the Never Back Down Political Action Committee. Okay, we have a pro-Trump narrative from the Epic Times. It's full steam ahead for Trump to secure the Republican nomination, and his campaign has Democratic attorney General Bragg to thank for a lot of his success. Trump was already crushing DeSantis and Haley in the polls, and now because of the politically motivated indictment, Trump's fundraising is on a roll. A return to the White House is within reach. Counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from NBC News. Trump shouldn't celebrate too much. His ravenous base might have been energized into donating more in the weeks since his indictment. But there's no telling if the increased fundraising has staying power. Trump's campaign's average weekly haul is at the same level it was shortly after the 2022 midterms, a sign it could flatten out after the initial outrage subsides. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 25% chance that Trump will be elected U.S. president in 2024, according to the Metaculus prediction community. It is such a burden for me to be right all the time about everything. That being said, <laughs> the minute I knew Trump was going to win in 2016 was when it was the Iowa caucuses. It was the first Republican primary in Iowa, and he didn't win it, but he narrowly lost it to Ted Cruz. And I knew then that, that he was for real because... Either no one was going to vote for him or he was going to be a major contender. And even though he didn't win Iowa, that legitimized him in my in a lot of people's mind. But like, oh, no, a lot of people are going to vote for this guy. And wouldn't you know what? He picked up steam and then he ended up winning. I kind of feel the same way about this fundraising here. I'm not ready to make my prediction yet. But you're the expert, Scott. <laughs> yeah, you should listen to me. I have an expensive <laughs> microphone. That's what's why. <laughs> what. <laughs> Tragedy at a government event in India as heat stroke kills 11. Here the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, BQ Prime, Hindustan Times, The Times of India, and Al Jazeera. On Sunday, 12 people died and many others were hospitalized from heat stroke after attending an hours-long, government-sponsored award ceremony held in India's Maharashtra state. 
The Maharashtra Busan Award ceremony was organized to celebrate the work of a famed social reformer and spiritual leader. The event was held in an open field in the Karaghar locality and reportedly lacked suitable facilities resulting in heat-related illnesses and deaths. It is estimated that one million people attended the event during the hottest time of the day. The deadly heat conditions hospitalized at least 50 people, and the majority of the ill and deceased were elderly women. Temperatures soared to 38 degrees Celsius, that's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, over the open field of observers. Several officials, including the Union Home Minister, Deputy Chief Minister, and Home Minister, attended the event but were seated under a covered dais. According to an official, the event reportedly violated the district's heat action plan. The Maharashtra state's chief minister visited the hospitalized and promised compensation for the victims and families. The opposing party, the Congress Party, called the event negligent and demanded criminal charges. Since 2010, more than 6,500 people in India have died from heat-related illnesses. Scott, thank you for that report. Our first spin for this story is Narrative A, coming from World Weather Attribution. March 2022 saw the hottest month recorded in India in 122 years since records began. Coupled with the heat came a significant reduction in rainfall, leading to scorching hot and dry conditions throughout the country. While heat waves are not uncommon, the increase in deaths from extreme heat during unusual times from severe conditions proves climate change is devastatingly impacting the region. Climate scientists believe that the likelihood of similar events, as March 2022, has increased 30-fold because of global changes. India is on the front lines of the climate threat. And Narrative B comes from Bloomberg. The Indian government must do better in preparation for heat waves regardless of the cause. The Indian government is failing to protect people from rising heat. In a country where less than 10% of people have access to air conditioning and the annual death rate due to heat-related illness is climbing, negligence is causing unnecessary deaths in sweltering conditions. Eric, you can probably tell from my name, I come from a long line of Scottish Highland cave dwellers. I, I, I can't deal with the heat like that. I, I would have to move away or something. I, just, I would just melt. <laughs> well, you know, Scott, there can be only one. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which one ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.